Welcome to the Time Machine. Experience the cancer journey through the eyes of the traveler. Welcome back to the Time Machine. What would you do, how would you respond if you were given one week to live? In June of 2019, Rachel Hamilton was sent home under hospice care and given one week to live by her doctors. It is now 2020. She joins us in the time machine. Do you believe in miracles? Rachel, welcome to the time machine. Thank you. Very excited to have you. Um, I've been uh, hoping to be able to sit down and and chat with you because I've been... Well, first, um, we came and we saw you play volleyball, so we're familiar with you that way. Yeah. And then... um, and then, of course, through your recent journey, um, we've been following and, and watching, and I've just been inspired by you. So with that, um, would love to hear, you know, your journey, starting with diagnosis, and then we can, we can go from there. Okay. So I guess it started a little over a year ago. Um, it was finals week. I was going to MSUB. I was in high school at the time, but connections... And finals week, it was a little, I couldn't sleep because if I laid down, I couldn't breathe. So I would just sit up all night, like frustrated, like, what's going on? Why is my back hurting? Um, and I told my dad because my dad is, he calls himself Dr. Hamilton because he thinks he can fix anything. And so he did something to my back, didn't work. And so he's like, ah, it's probably isn't good that I can't fix it. So I went to a chiropractor. And just like a couple months before that, I was bucked off my horse and broke my collarbone. So they thought maybe like I had a rib out or something and that's why that was happening. So they had me go to my, um, I have this doctor at Billings Clinic that I go to for like sports medicine because they thought it was something with my rib or something like that. And he examined me for like five seconds and he was like, um, you got to go to the ER. But... I was in the middle of finals, so I was like, oh, I'll go after finals. So I finished all my classes, or like my finals, and then went in right after to, I didn't go to the ER because it was too, I didn't want to spend that much money because I didn't think it was really anything. So I went to um, my peds doctor because I was still like 17, I think I was 18 then, so I could still see her. And so right away, they realized my right lung was like 80% full of fluid. So they thought it was pneumonia. And they wanted to hospitalize me, but I really didn't want to. And my mom's a nurse. So they said, you know, if you watch her really carefully, you can take her home. And I was supposed to go in two days later to the ER to get, um, like, put a needle in my lung to drain the fluid just to see, you know, what was in there. So when I went into the ER... They drained the fluid, and it was, like, bloody and muddy. Um, And they did a a CT scan. Just It was just to see my lungs, but they happened to, like, catch just a glimpse of my liver. And they saw a bunch of spots on that. And then they realized it wasn't pneumonia. It was a pulmonary emboli. And it was just a bunch of blood in that lung. And that's why I couldn't breathe when I laid down because all the blood was filling up my lungs. So they made me stay in the hospital that time. 
and they were they gave me the infectious disease doctor there because they were pretty sure that the spots on my liver were parasites because the summer before I spent a month living in Costa Rica with a family um, through an exchange program and they owned like a fruit farm so it wasn't like the cleanest or most sanitary place so they thought I had a paras- like a bunch of parasites so they were planning on doing surgery to get those out but then I think it was a biopsy that came back and they decided it was amoebas not parasites so they gave me some antibiotics and blood thinners so I wouldn't get any more um, PEs and they sent me home and this was right I spent about a week in the hospital so I got out like the day before Christmas which I was excited about um and my mom like being a nurse or just being a mom I don't know knew like something wasn't really right Because they told me I was fine, just take the antibiotics, come back when you need more pills. Other than that, you know, you don't need to come see us. Um, And all my doctors went on vacation for Christmas. So she was trying to call them and say, you know, can we do another test? I just, she didn't feel right about it. But nobody was really getting back because it was Christmas and all that. So I went to Canada the first week of January. Um, I go to a really small um Indian reservation called Cross Lake there and we do a missions trip in the summer and then in the winter we go for a couple days just to see the people and I wasn't gonna miss that because it's like my favorite thing so my dad took me to our pastors at Faithy and they prayed over me for the trip and that's probably the only reason I didn't die on the trip because the doctors really thought I should have died on that trip um but I came home and the next week I went to Colorado for a speech and debate tournament And I was getting ready and all of a sudden there was just this like terrible pain in my abdomen. And I'm not really a baby when it comes to pain. So I knew it was like something pretty bad. So we went into the ER. It was like 5 a.m. or something. And one of what they later found to be tumors had burst open in my liver and it was just bleeding inside there. And they also said like that should have killed me. But because of one of my tumors were so big that the blood got trapped So they just rushed me into surgery to stop that bleeding. Um, And then when I got out, I spent the night in the ICU there. And they said, you know, we don't know what you have, but it's not what they told you in Billings. You can either go to Denver or to Salt Lake City because those are the um, closest hospitals that could handle me, I guess. So we chose to go to Salt Lake because I have a lot of friends there from speech and debate. So they flew me there. um, And then it was about a month of doctors they had like the head doctor from each department come and then week by week they found out oh it wasn't infectious disease so they would leave um until they were left with the liver surgeon and they had run a biopsy for cancer and it came back negative so they ruled out cancer so they really didn't know what was going on and he said that all these spots on my liver I think there was like 28 or something there's Yeah, there was quite a few of them. He thought maybe they were just like benign adenomas. So he said he can take those out um, and just that I had disorder that I was getting adenomas. So they were going to do surgery to get as many as he could. He'd have to do a lot to get them all, but that was the plan. But they had to wait a couple days because I still had clotting issues. I was weak from the bleeding. There's just a lot going wrong. Um, and so the risk for the surgery was just really high. It was kind of like 50-50 if I would live or die through it. 
And then they ran another biopsy. Um, and they they had run it like a couple weeks prior, but it took a long time to get back because they didn't rush it because they didn't think it was cancer. But then it came back. And so Dr. Kim, the liver surgeon, came in and he was like, I don't sit down often, guys, and I'm sitting down, so this is important. And that's when he told me I have hepatic cellular carcinoma. Um, and just my mom and my dad were with me there. And I was just very relieved because I was so tired of being like a puzzle that they couldn't put together and they didn't know what was wrong. I was like, well, at least they know. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason that, like one of the reasons it took them so long is hepatic cellular carcinoma only happens in elderly men who like drink their life away and that's why their liver is like this and they've never had it in a girl my age so they still don't know how i got it um so that's probably a reason that it took a while to find out wow that's a lot yeah and that happened over how, from the time that you started having your your first noticing things till mm-hmm. then how many months was that it was just over a month it's probably like six okay. weeks Okay. And yeah. so once you found out, you're relieved. Mm-hmm. Um, how were your parents? Oh, um, my dad was angry because he, I mean, my dad, has, my both my parents are so strong, like in their faith. Um, and he was frustrated that like he prayed for me and laid his hands on me. Like, why didn't God heal me? Because he knows he can, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, But my dad and I, I know, we're never worried or scared. We were like, well, God gave it to me for a reason. So, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my mom was more worried about me because she's a nurse. So, she really understood mm-hmm. <laughs> how bad it was. But they were both great. Like, yeah. I think the reason I didn't have to worry through any of it was because, like, I my parents were so good about that. Yeah. How about, um, how about your friends? Was that... <laughs> well, so, I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want people to, be, like, freak out. <laughs> so my like very best friend was visiting a college in Oregon while this was going on. So I didn't tell her right away. She was pretty upset because the way she found out somebody from Salt Lake that I didn't know very well, but I had like competed in speech and debate with him for a couple years came to visit me and he just happened to come the day we found out that it was cancer. And so he didn't realize that I was trying to like keep it on the down low. And he posted on Facebook and tagged me like, please pray for my friend, Rachel Hamilton. She's just been diagnosed with cancer. So that's how everybody in my life found out. And some people weren't that happy. I didn't tell them first. Yes. Well, that that's an interesting process when you try to get information to people and you kind of need yeah. a publicist and a plan yeah on on how to and who to who to have conversations with and once once it got out what was the response how was that as as you're already dealing with the diagnosis and then certain to deal with with people calling and asking how was that for you it was fine for me. I mean, I tried to respond to all of them, but I like I sh- I wasn't that good at responding as I should have been because there was just so many. Um, but like I felt loved by all the support, um, and a lot of people called my mom too. So I think it was like more for her because it was all my relatives who wanted to know every detail. And yeah, there's a lot of nurses <laughs> in the family, so yeah, we had that right away. Where I I loved that people were asking mm-hmm. but then you did find yourself saying the same thing over yeah. and over like 30 times so a day so right away you know my wife started to to do 
at the Caring Bridge site and put mm-hmm. the information there, which was really valuable because then people could go, they could be updated, she could do it once. And then if they had more questions, then, you know, and so that kind of alleviated happened to give updates you yeah. know, continuously. And, and I felt the same way. It's nice that people are interested in, yeah. you know, so what did they, so once you're diagnosed, what was the, what was the options for treatment? What was their um, outlook on, on what could possibly happen for you as far as, as far as, you know, health-wise and, and longevity and... Yeah. So they... Well, they said I should have already died like four times. So they weren't too hopeful. It was kind of, you know, let's see if we can make you live a little longer so you have more time with your family. But this is an aggressive cancer and there's actually no stages in it, I found out, because usually people just die so quick from it. There's hmm. just not really any room for stages, I guess. Um... And as far as a plan, I was basically their guinea pig since they didn't have any roadmap for someone like me having that because I was so young. So the first thing they considered was a liver transplant, but I didn't meet the requirements because you can't have as many tumors as I had and you can't have them as big as I did. So I couldn't do that. Um, So... And any surgery, they're like, you know, worried about clotting and that I wouldn't make it through that. So they decided to go with um, what's called a taste procedure. So what they did with that, they would go in. It was um, operations with an IR doc and he would go in through um, like my waist area and insert little beads with chemo in them into like he could do like one or two tumors per procedure. Um And, yeah, the first day he did that was pretty rough because I have to be awake during all of them. And so, like, you know, they give you pain meds, but you still, like, feel it kind of. So that was kind of rough. And I was on the table for, like, 15 hours one day. So I was just, like, sore and, like, tired of it. But after the first one, they they weren't that bad. Um, You just get used to it. So, yeah, they put in those beads of chemo in the tumors and then, like, they just release chemo, like, it's a timed thing and it takes them about six months to kill the tumors, but they were able to get the biggest ones because I had a lot that were like bigger than golf balls. So they wanted to really get those big ones. So we did that. We would do taste procedures every couple weeks and then infusions like every couple weeks. Um, and then just dealing with the, like all the effects that cancer gave me, like trying to clear all those up. What were some of those? What was the main issues you were dealing with the worst one was probably dic i can't remember what that stands for but it's like uh it's like your blood is at risk for clotting but also at risk for bleeding out from the blood thinners um and i didn't know it at the time but apparently like i was telling a doctor in the er just the other night you know that i had dic and she's like oh you don't usually see people alive after that and i had no idea until just like a couple weeks ago Um, So they were trying to deal with that, and then there was a lot of blood in my abdomen from when the tumor burst, and they were trying to prevent another one from bursting. Um, Yeah, and then I had an ileus, I think it's called, where, like, my intestine turned, so every time I tried to eat food, I would just puke it back up, so I was losing a lot of weight, so we had to fix that, too. What, uh, what What did you do along that, as far as... When you're dealing with so many different things, did your diet change? Did your sleep habits change? What were things that 
you did and how did you what did you do for 15 hours to pass the time and when you were on the table well I had to answer questions like oh how does do you feel this and there so like that took up but a lot of it I would just like daydream like because I would get really cold for some reason I'm like a person who's always hot but on the table, I'd get really cold, even though I had blankets on. So I would just like envision like dipping my toes in a hot tub for like <laughs> hours and hours. And that's like all I did. <laughs> nice. You didn't get a chance. You couldn't read or do any. No, because they were operating on me. So like oh, I couldn't move. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. I try to multitask anytime I can and <laughs> yeah. try to go, well, I'm here. I might as well get, you know, this yeah. in. But then there's sometimes you just are the patient that yeah, you gets just to be. Lay there yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, you mentioned over and over, I should be dead. They said I should be dead. Yeah. I should be dead. Oh, they said, you should, you know, and so I guess after hearing that four or five times, the question I have for you, Rachel, is why are you not dead? <laughs> and and what are you doing with your time that you've been given? I think there's only like, there's one reason I'm not dead. Well, okay, so the end of June, I was put on hospice. They told me and my family, you know, a week to live tops. Um, definitely going to be dead by August if you make it that far. And um, Denise Johnson organized, like, a prayer vigil. And so many people showed up to my house just to pray for me. And I think, like, that's probably the most, like, loved I've ever felt because they were just there to pray for, like, me and my family. Um, and that was, like, in the middle of being on hospice when I was supposed to be dead. And I really think the only reason I'm not dead, I don't think it's because of me or, like, my faith or I fought so hard. Like, people say that sometimes. I just think it's because so many people were praying for me. And I had people praying, like, you know, here, up in Canada, down in Costa Rica. Like, there was just so many people that were praying. And I really think that's the only reason, like, that God saved me is because, like, prayer is so powerful. And, like, it really, there was just so much that I think that's why. Yeah, we we were at that vigil and. And uh, it was really moving for me because I was there with my kids, and it was it was powerful. People were all around the house and holding yeah. hands, but it was it was interesting too because watch my kids running around, and then it's easy to place yourself there too to go to go. You know, if if my journey ends soon or this way, so it was a uh, it was an interesting moment to. To, to be a part of, you know, because it was it was powerful. People were praying. And then I had also this, oh, this could be, you know, my house you know, yeah. next month. So um, it was, yeah, I was really struck by by that. It was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I said hi just for a second because you were surrounded with people. Yeah. I was like, hey. But um, it was, it was, I didn't want to talk too much because I was really moved, you know, in a good way, in a very powerful way. So, um yeah, that's uh, and that was August. Oh no, July. I think it that was, was in July. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. So now, what are they telling you that they gave you a week or two and now? Yeah. <laughs> well, they said like you know this is not due to any medicine, like any medical reason, like you should be dead. There's no other like conclusion you could come to by medical terms. And my doctor, Cobb, here is like, we don't use the M word, but there's this is a miracle. There's no way around yeah. it, which is cool because it is. Um, and so now 
So I got off of hospice in November. Um, so they're not really sure what to do with me now. Because, like, they didn't know before and, like, now they really don't. So they're talking. I go up to Salt Lake because I still get treated in Salt Lake um, in a couple weeks. And I think they're going to talk about starting the taste procedures again because I still have a couple tumors left in there. So try that. But they're kind of like, don't poke the hornet's nest. I mean, you're doing good. We don't know why, but yeah. don't want to mess that up. Yeah. What? That's just, it is a miracle. It's amazing. Yeah. What? How does the transition, like in your mind, go from okay, I'm I'm given a few weeks, we're kind of to then that changing, and now you know you're different prospects. Now you you you're okay. Go back to <laughs> doing what you were doing before. Yeah. It's, how does how do you process that? And like, what was that journey like to go? I'm home. I have a little time, and wait. Yeah. I guess I've got more time. It was like every day you're like, uh, like I'm supposed to be dead today. Like uh, I guess I'm not. Like I'll just yeah. you know, um, I was like definitely like I think God really blessed me in that. Like I was peaceful about it the whole time. Like I was never worried about dying because like obviously I'll go to heaven. Um, but I think it was like almost harder transitioning back to like being healthy than it was like fighting the cancer. Because you just, like, everything switches. You don't have to plan for the future. You don't have to, like, do anything to, like, plan for your life, I guess. Because you don't think you're going to have one. Um, And there's, like, good things and bad things about all of it. But, yeah, it's just been, like, interesting. Like, hmm, I got to, like, go back to, like, school and think about my grades and plan for the future now. Like, and definitely, like, priorities have shifted. Um, So, Yeah. So you, you mentioned missions and that that was a big part of your life, something. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? Is yeah. that um And you said, you know, obviously I'm going to heaven. So what is what is your faith background? What do you what do you believe? And and on these mission trips, is that something you're planning to do in the future? Yeah. Um, well, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents both have like such strong faith. So that's been like a big blessing. Um, and the missions trip. Um, that I was talking about is in Cross Lake, Manitoba. Um, And in the summers, we go up for 11 days and we have a Bible school for like kids below high school. And we get like a few hundred of them every day. So it's pretty crazy, but it's just amazing. And then we do stuff with the teens later at night. And then we have some ministries for like um, the older people in the community. So we really try to hit it all. And the community is so interesting. It's it's a really dark place. I had never been to like such a spiritually dark place until I went there. Um, and just, you know, how they're growing up and all this stuff. They have like a really hard life. But those people like are still so happy, so fun, you know, loving. I just like definitely they take up like probably the biggest part of my heart. Um, but it's also scary because it is so dark and it's like, you know, you love these people so much. And what can I do so that they're going to heaven with me? Because you can't do anything. You know, you pray and God does it. Um, so, yeah, I just love going up there and doing, you know, what I can. And just, yeah, I'm planning to go up there um, just after finals for a couple weeks. Because they have one school for, like, um, K through 8. And they have, like, 1,400 kids 
So it's pretty, it's kind of crazy up there. And I, so I'm going to go help the teachers and just um, be in the community because yeah, that community just has my heart. Nice. So where are you in school? So you talk about finals Mm -hmm. and so where are you and kind of how did this disrupt it? Are you? Yeah. So I was actually planning on taking the spring semester off to go to Africa with Taylor to Nima Village. Um, And obviously I couldn't do that. So it didn't actually, it was about 11 months of like having to stay in the hospital all the time. And it was either that spring semester or summer. So it wasn't that bad on school. It's kind of hard now and I have to miss some going to Salt Lake. Um, But it's, yeah, it's working. And I think I'm like halfway through my degree. I added a minor. So I think I have like two years or something. Okay. And how old are you? 19. 19. Okay. Mm -hmm. Speech and debate. I want to hear about this. (laughs) So how did you get into speech and debate? and, And what is a competition like? So I started when I was a freshman. So I went to a private school for 7th and 8th grade and I loved it. I did not want to be homeschooled for high school, but my parents made me and I'm thankful now. But at the time I was not. And so I was a freshman is like, you know, fall school had just started and my mom was like, oh, we're going to go to the speech and debate tournament. And I was not happy. She made me go. I didn't want to go. I thought everyone was going to be weird. Like I was in such a bad attitude about it. Um, and it was in Lewistown, Montana. And then I went there and just like, I loved it. I was all in. And so the, I compete in NCFCA. It's National Christians Forensic Communication Association. And it's nationwide. And they divide the nation into 10 regions. So ours is Montana, the Dakotas, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. So you have a tournament in a different state each month. Um, And then if you qualify, you can go to regionals. And if you win regionals, you can go to nationals, which is super cool because, you know, it's like really intense competition, but it's super fun. Nice. So what what is it? How do I've never been in or seen, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a a speech and debate contest. What do they call it? Yeah. Tournament. Tournament. Yeah. Um, How how do they how does it like how do you how does it work when you come in mm-hmm. um do you get a pick certain topics or they give you topics how, like i'm a novice i know nothing so how does it work okay so there's 10 different speech categories and then there's two different types of debate you can either do one on one or two on two i did one on one cuz it's more fun um <laughs> so the speech topics you know there's platform speeches which are ones that you've written ahead of time you've memorized and you know what those are um, and then there's limited prep, which you don't know the topics beforehand. You go in the room and you pick them and then you have a couple minutes to prepare speech. And there's impromptu, which is just any topic, apologetics, which is all faith-based ones, and extemporaneous, which is like news and political stuff, which is super fun. Um, yeah, so you go, you pick your, what you want to compete in beforehand and you sign up. And then you go to the tournament prepared for whatever you're going to compete in. And then it's three days and you just go from like eight in the morning to like six at night or eight at night sometimes. And you do a speech and then a debate and then a speech and debate. And those are the preliminary rounds. So everyone competes in those. And then the last day is the out rounds. So like the top half break or like advance to the finals and then the top half from that group gets to keep going until you know you have your winner and you have judges that are like parents of competitors but also community judges from each community so it's super fun so when you do a did you call it limited prep Mm -hmm. so what's an example of something you would draw 
or something um, you've done for impromptu or yeah so what what would be a topic or something you've done it kind of so impromptu it'll either be like one word like you might get bravery or laughter okay. anything like that or it can be a quote or like a saying like I remember a saying that I got the first time was pass the buck and I didn't know what it meant so like I did a whole thing on hunting then I found out after <laughs> that's not what it means <laughs> so that wasn't my best one Oh, yeah. that's, I love that. Yeah. And they don't tell you. You don't get to ask a question. You just, no, you, you just, just go. You got two minutes. Pass the buck. And then you give a five minute speech. That is brilliant. Yeah. I love, I would love to hear that one. <laughs> was it um, my best? And um, you mentioned earlier your horse. Mm-hmm. And my daughter is obsessed with horses. <laughs> and tomorrow we're going to go and she gets to, um, my, um, I have a friend that has a horse family that's going to let her brush out her horse and start doing some of the the learning before the riding. And she's been asking me like every day. So we finally got that worked out. So she would, she would, um, if she were sitting here, we would have started with, so tell me about your horse. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about your horse. Yeah. <laughs> so I was the same way, obsessed with horses growing up, but my parents didn't want to get me a horse. So when I turned 14, I think, my mom got me, like, a riding lesson for my birthday. And it was just, like, oh, from there. I just, like, fell deeper in. I just loved it. Um, And for my 16th birthday, so I had been riding a horse called Dutch. He's really tall. He's big. I love big horses. But he's, like, a lazy oaf. You have to make him move. And so when I was 16, um, the lady whose horse it was, it was her daughter's horse. And her daughter decided not to ride anymore. So, like, we kind of bought it, but she really gave it to us for, like, such a cheap price. So, that was, like, really nice, really cool. And, yeah, I compete in the spring on him, and then I just ride all year round, and he is, like, amazing. It was so cool. You know, I couldn't really ride when I was super sick, but when I first went out there, um, after not being there for a while, it was, like, he was taking care of me. He knew. He was nice. Like, it was amazing, like, how much they can tell. Yes, that's um, horse therapy is a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. I know a lot with friends who have have endured a lot of trauma, and I've I've definitely been interested in on that healing process that comes through trauma in horses. But um, yeah, it's amazing to hear how horses can relate. So, do you ride now? Do you? So I'm still like I'm getting back into it. It was hard because I was so weak and. Um, yeah, but I'm getting back into it more now. And my trainer out at the barn that I keep my horse at uses him for lessons because he's great with kids because he's just a safe horse. Um, and so she's been using him for that. But a lot of times I just go out and I just, you know, spend time with him because they're just so therapeutic. But yeah. So what now that you've been a few months, um, kind of getting back to some kind of normalcy, I guess, after being, you know, sent home with short time. Yeah. What are the things that you, you've been able to kind of just get right back into? And then what are the things you're limited with? Like, say, riding a horse, do they tell you, hey, mm-hmm. let's not do that? Because it's, are there certain things that they would consider dangerous for you? Not. Yeah, one thing that was really, this was probably the biggest disappointment of being sick, um... So before I got sick, I was planning to go play volleyball in a like Christian college in California. And obviously, you know, I lost all my muscles, so I can't really do that. 
And so it's been like really fun coaching. Um, and I've loved coaching volleyball, but it's like hard not being able to play at the level that I was at before. But, it, you know, it's like coming back slowly. But that's probably yeah. one of the things that like the biggest thing that I couldn't jump back into. Yeah. As far as coaching goes, um, where are you coaching at? Is that through? Is that? No, when I first watched it, it was the homeschool mm-hmm. girls. Is it coaching through there or is it through something else? So I coached the like the homeschool team during fall. And then now I'm coaching the Montana juniors like it's fifth and sixth graders with Taylor. Okay. Yeah, they're so cute and little. Um, I They're both like I love coaching both age groups. But yeah. Yes. Very good. Well, a few other questions I, um, I have for you is now that I guess my... The one that on the forefront of my mind is what what do you look forward to in the future like what is your what do you have goals for you know for what you're going to do for a career mm-hmm. and what really moves you and I think sometimes when when you're forced to face things like death over and over and over <laughs> and over you're like um a daredevil that way yeah. and um uh does that change your I guess I guess I would say it this way: Have things changed? Have you have a, a any? Does that perspective on on how short life can be has that changed in any way the way you see the future? Or are you still kind of interested in the same things you were before? It changed. I'm still interested in the same things. The only thing I would say it changed was like I've always talked about going up to Cross Lake and helping out there. Um, it was just something I talked about and I wanted to do and I always wanted to do it. And now I was like, well, do it, you know? So now I just really do things instead of waiting for them. Um, but yeah, my goal is I want to become a lawyer and, you know, eventually work in immigration law. Um, won't start out there, but that's my goal right now. I mean, it could change, but that's what I want to do right now. One of the things that I've noticed um, on the cancer journey is kind of watching people is, you know, support's important and there's just different dynamics. You watch different people as they go through it. So what would you say were the most important things for you to be, you know, stable and healthy, the things that you could control? Mm -hmm. And what are the things that were most important for you or are most important for you right now as far as just walking through this? Mm, Like physical things or just Mm -hmm. like... Well, either either physical because we we I've said I've had conversations. I know for for me, there's certain things I'll do nutritionally and mm-hmm. certain things I'll do for my health, and there's certain yeah. things I'll do with my environment. But um, you just seem so chill, <laughs> and like it's like yeah. And then I was supposed to die, and then I didn't. And then I was supposed <laughs> to die, and then I didn't. And so then I did this. Um, so you your you know your attitude and and the way you handle it is it's it's fantastic. So were there ever dark times for you? No, I just, like, it's, and it's not me at all. Like, it really is all God. Like, I don't know why he gave me a piece about it, but he did. Like, I didn't have to worry about anything because I know it's all in God's hands. And, you know, if I died, wasn't worried about me, but, like, you know, my family would be sad. Um, But I knew that, you know, he's going to take care of him and use it for something. So it it was just, like, everything's going to work for a positive. I I don't know how people go through it without God because, like, how could you find a reason for it, you know? So that would be, I can't imagine if you didn't have faith. Yeah. So the, I had a a friend on in, she talked about being grateful. Mm -hmm. She goes, every day you need to have three things you're grateful for. (laughs) And so what are three things that you're grateful for? Hmm. 
Oh, my parents. My friend Ryan. And God letting me go back to Cross Lake again. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, any any other thoughts or things that that have been rattling around that maybe you'd like to say or things that you think would have value to people? Just lately, I don't know if this will have value to anybody, but lately I've just been like really it's so easy to use cancer as an excuse for anything. Like, you don't want to go to a party? Sorry, like, I'm not feeling so good. Like, anything. And I really, like, don't want to use it for as an excuse for anything because I don't need to now. Like, I'm doing better. So just, like, even though I can use those excuses, like, still, like, pushing myself to, like, do the things I don't want to do in life, but, like, everybody has to do. Like, go to class, you know? Stuff yeah. like that. But, yeah. My uh, my wife's best friend Ashley, she gave me a cancer card, <laughs> and it was great. She gave me she gave me one, so it's on my keychain. She goes, "If you ever need it, just play play the cancer card." That's awesome. And I've never never had to, but um, yeah, it was funny. She's got a great sense of humor, and I felt that way too. I think um, the one thing not not much really changed for us, other than um, you know, I mean, I, I guess I would speak for myself. For me. Because, you know, my wife's journey obviously is, is very different than than mine through this. But um, there's just so much opportunity, so many things that I want to engage in and do. And mm-hmm. and so I definitely want to make sure to to take advantage of every moment. Yeah. And, you know, I I think every every moment, you know, all, all, all the things we have are just such a gift. And so I found, um, I just found a great... I found the diagnosis for me not to be what, you know, you're look for or hope for, but um, it's been a great gift as far as perspective of, you know, what's important and to enjoy the time, you know, with the people and that you have. And, you know, it, I guess it, it narrowed down. You just, for me, I was just able to focus on the things that were most important, which, you know, faith and my family and, mm-hmm. and it made things pretty simple, but um any um any any last thoughts before we uh we uh wrap this up? I don't think so. No. Well, it's it's exciting to have you. I'm I'm uh, a big fan and you've been an inspiration to me. Like I said, I've 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 watched and seen your attitude and it's um it's been a big inspiration for me and and excited to hear that you haven't died yeah. and that you're not <laughs> still um, strong. Still here. You were supposed to die. No, still here. <laughs> Um, really inspired by your story, Rachel. And so thank you for coming on and, um, would love to have you maybe down the road again, because I'm sure there'll be new things that you're, you're venturing into. So thank you, um, very much for coming. And with that, we'll call this a wrap. Thanks for having me. You bet.